0: From powerlineblog.com and produced by ricochet.com, this is The Powerline Show with your host, Steve Hayward. So how many federal judges do you know who played for the Cuban Olympic National Basketball Team? How many federal judges do you know who are legendary for driving around in a 1960s-era convertible Rolls-Royce? And how many federal judges do you know who were nearly deported from the United States? Well, statisticians would say that is an N of one, and that one is Judge Carlos Bea, who recently decided to take senior status from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, the San Francisco chapter of the Federalist Society decided to throw a little reception in his honor for his long and distinguished and very colorful legal career, and kindly invited me to be an interlocutor with Judge Bea to have him tell his life story and also talk about some key cases he has participated in and some of his favorite decisions. And so, without further ado... Let's talk to the man who the Los Angeles Daily Journal called the most interesting judge on the Ninth Circuit. And that's saying something, since the Ninth Circuit is legendary for having a lot of colorful jurists over the years. Thank, thanks very much. So we thought tonight we would do this kind of Tonight Show style a little bit with a conversation. Uh, but just to get people settled in and in the right mood, Uh, I thought I'd give you. uh, uh, There is an element to Judge Baez's story that involves immigration, so I wanted to give you a little bit of immigration news and law that you may not be aware of. Uh, I don't know, I'm doubting many people here came here from a foreign country on a visa, maybe one or two of you. But if you do come here on a visa, uh, of any kind of visa, tourist, student, whatever, you have to fill out the State Department's form DS 160. Has anybody ever seen this? The website says, plan to take 90 minutes to fill it out. And it asks a whole series of questions. So here are just a few of the questions they ask you to answer to get a visa to come to the United States. And I'm quoting here, do you seek to engage in terrorist activities while in the United States? Or have you ever
1: engaged in terrorist activities? Do they define terrorism? No.
0: But I'm, I'm guessing the 9-11 hijackers maybe lied about this question when they applied, just a hunch, or maybe they changed their mind when they got here and went to a Middle Eastern Studies department at any university. I don't know. Um, there are more. Are you a member or representative of a terrorist organization? Uh, have you ever ordered, incited, committed, assisted, or otherwise participated in genocide? And there's a whole lot of other questions. You know, are you coming to the United States to engage in human trafficking, in drug dealing, in money laundering? And it's yes or no, you, you tick a box. Older versions of the DS-160 had a question. Uh, have you ever been associated with anyone involved with the Nazi party of Germany? That question's been dropped because I think all the old Nazis in Brazil and Argentina have died. <laughs> But here's the best part, at the end of several pages of questions uh, like this, the form says, and I am quoting here, while a yes answer does not automatically (laughs) signify ineligibility for a visa, you may be required to personally appear before a consular officer. (laughs) So your tax dollars at work keeping (laughs) America safe. Judge Bay will come to your immigration story in due course. Uh, Judge Bay, is, uh, as I think most of you know, has recently taken senior status on the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, we're, gonna, um, we're gonna have a conversation that's gonna come in three parts tonight. Uh, first, be, I don't know how many of you know this, the LA Daily Journal, which is you know, the legal trade journal uh, of the industry in Los Angeles, calls Judge Bay the most interesting man on the Ninth Circuit. So that obviously goes beyond just jurisprudence. Uh, And he has uh, a fascinating personal story. Uh, I've been looking around, and not only is, I believe, the only federal judge who ever played on an Olympic basketball team, (laughs) but he did so for the nation of Cuba. He's also been awarded three medals by the King of Spain. So you begin to get the impression this is not your ordinary uh, uh, jurist. Uh, So judge, let's, uh, for part one, start at the beginning. You were born in Spain, and the family uh, left in the late 1930s. Lots of trouble in Spain, lots of trouble in Europe. So take it from there and tell us a little bit about that.
1: Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, it's a really a pleasure to be here and to see a good turnout as we're having. And it's such a pleasant place. And I see some old friends and some old faces. and I love, I'm very happy to be here. OK, <clears throat> yeah, I was born in Spain, but my father had been born in Cuba. Uh, when Cuba was still a Spanish colony and in, in 1931 when the Spanish Republic came into power uh, my father could see that there might be some difficulties um, in Spain he was he foresaw what became the Spanish Civil War um, and so he made us all Cubans he he took out a Cuban citizenship and so when I was born I was a Cuban citizen and um, that's why when I wanted to go to play in the, in the Olympic Games, I was part of the Cuban team. Um, so, but before all that, we, my father had died in 1937 and my mother and my brother and I were living in France, um, in Biarritz, uh, in 1939, of course I was five years old. Um, but at that time, the war broke out. Um, Germany invaded Poland. And uh, my mother had um, seen at firsthand the Germans at work in the Spanish Civil War, and she thought that the Germans would eat the French in six weeks, which is absolutely what happened. Um, So she said it would be a good idea to get out of France, and then she thought it's probably a good idea to get out of Spain because Hitler might not just stop in France, he might want to go through Spain to Portugal and take over Portugal, It was an ally of Britain And so we got in a ship uh, in Lisbon and went to Havana. It took 16 days to get there. Um, We were alarmed from time to time by sightings of periscopes and German submarines, um, which may or may not have been true, um, depending on what my brother wanted to yell and scream. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we got to Havana. And uh, a mother made the discovery that in Havana it was hot and there were mosquitoes. Um, <laughs> she'd been brought up in a convent in Granada. And um, so she said, let's go, to, let's go to the United States. So we were Cuban citizens, and, and Cubans had um, very easy access to the United States in those days. And we went to Florida, and to the great disappointment of my mother, not everybody then spoke Spanish. In, uh, in Florida. And she said, let's go to California. Everybody must speak Spanish there because all the cities are named in Spanish. So she bought a used 1938 Buick and piled us in, and we drove to California. And that's how I got here.
0: <laughs> so here in California, the next part is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a failed ex-athlete. And so I'm hugely charmed by the fact that you set a scoring record at Menlo Park Community College, 38 points in one game. That's a lot of points. Even today, that's a lot of points. Back then, that was an unbelievable amount of points, whereupon you were recruited by, among others, to play college ball, the famous John Wooden of UCLA. Right. But you ended up picking Stanford. So I mean, I'm sure everybody, <laughs> 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 we must have a Bruin graduate here. Uh, I'm I'm sure people sometimes ask you, do you regret not having played for John Wooden? Or maybe you want to skip over that and just go to deciding to come for Stanford, and then I'll follow up from there.
1: Okay. Uh, Yeah, I had a a pretty good year at Menlo JC, my freshman year. And uh, it's true that I I got a a letter from Mr. Wooden that he'd like to see me. And uh, Mr. Wooden's daughter, Peggy, was going to high school uh, that I just graduated from. So we knew each other. And so I went to see Mr. Wooden, and who was an extremely impressive person. I mean, he was not only a great basketball coach, but he was a man of uh, impressive character. Uh, and uh, everything he said made me feel like I wanted to go to UCLA. And then um, I promised to go to Stanford, an inter- interview at Stanford. And the coach then, um, Everett Dean and Bob Burnett, was assistant coach. Uh, said, uh, well, you know, Carlos, you, you really ought to come to school at Stanford rather than UCLA. And I said, well, wh- why? And they said, well, first of all, you probably get a better education at Stanford than you will <laughs> at UCLA. And frankly, you'll have more playing time here. <laughs> <laughs> and that convinced me. So I went to Stanford for a, a couple of uh, um, quarters, and then that was when I went down to Cuba to train with the Cuban Olympic team. Um, the, uh, qualifying for the Cuban Olympic team wasn't all that difficult. Um, I had, as I said, a pretty good se- season at Menlo JC and I had some clippings. So I sent them down to the Cuban Olympic basketball coach and I said, when can I try out for the Cuban team? And he said, you don't have to try out. You're on the team. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I, I drove down to uh, New Orleans and took a ship over to, uh, to Havana. We started playing, uh, started training. Um, but then we found out that we had no money to go to the Olympic Games because the Olympic Committee that had the money um, was under the previous president, Prioso Carras. And when, they, when Batista took over, um, the Olympic committee took the money and went to Miami. <laughs> so the, the till was empty. Um, and we had a television show, and um, that didn't bring in any money. But we finally found a um, very attractive blonde who was a friend of General Batista. And he had made her the directrix of feminine sports in Cuba. <laughs> and we said, we need $15,000 in 1950, to have a lot of money, um, to go to Helsinki. And she went to see the, as she called him, the general, um, and called us up. And she said, I've got your check for you. And it was 17500 She says, my commission is 2500 <laughs> whatever's right. <laughs> <laughs> as she said, um, but there's one other condition, you have to take my husband as your assistant coach. We said, my dear Luis, he doesn't know a basketball from a cassava melon. Uh, she said, yeah, but I want him out of town. <laughs> For other reasons. So, that's how <laughs> so then we got to uh, Helsinki, but I always refer to myself as, as our family's Olympic tourist because when we got to Helsinki, we had a very good time, but we only won two out of seven games. So I was the Olympic tourist. Our son Sebastian, um, in 2000, uh, rode for the United States as the stroke and the two men uh, without, uh, without Cox and uh, won a silver medal. So uh, he's the Olympic athlete, I'm the Olympic tourist. <laughs> So one more sports question,
0: then back to Stanford and ultimately to law. But you came back to Stanford to finish up on a student visa. Mm. uh, And I want to ask about then why choosing law as a professional field. But this is where the story, I think, another interesting wrinkle to your personal story is that to stay in the country, ironically, you had to instigate a deportation process. Because otherwise, formally speaking, they were going to deport you for not being American or something. (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I was, a, I guess, a first-year stu- uh, law student at Stanford, I, I was pretty busy. I was playing on the basketball team at Stanford and going to first year of, of law school, which wasn't really very good for the team and wasn't very good for my grades. But uh, after that, um, I, uh, what, what happened was that when I came back from um, the Olympic Games, I played one more year in Europe. I played with Real Madrid for a year. Um, and when I came back after that, when I was going to come back, I went to the American embassy with my Cuban passport. And I said, I want us to get my, make sure my papers are in order. And they gave me a student visa, F1. And unbeknownst to me, because I was 18 at the time, um, that terminated my residency. And you can't be a lawyer at that time, unless you're an American citizen, you can't be an American citizen unless you're a resident. So I didn't have a chance to become an American citizen. And so I went to an attorney, and he said, what we have to do is start a deportation proceeding. It didn't sound so good to me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's what, we, what we did. And um, the deportation hearing was held. And I had witnesses that I was always meant to come back, and this was a mistake, et cetera. But the the hearing officer didn't believe me, and he thought I was trying to avoid the draft. And so I said, "Well, I'm not trying to avoid the draft. Draft me. I'm still draftable age." And he said, "Oh no," he said, um, "You, uh, you, 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 you can't, uh, you can't do that because." Uh, you voided the draft during the Korean War, and there won't ever be another war. <laughs> <laughs> so right. we went through the uh, uh, immigration hearing. And um, <clears throat> I lost at the, tr- at the trial level. And then we went back to Washington for a Board of Immigration hearing. And that's when I got lucky, because the chairman of the the chief justice of the Board of Immigration Appeal, the chairman then, after the oral argument, leaned over toward my attorney and said, Mr. Kidder, would you mind if I asked your client a couple of questions? Now, You're all lawyers. You're in an appellate courtroom. You haven't prepared your, your client for any sort of examination. You don't know where the judge is coming from don't know what issues he's going to bring up. But what can you say? Of course, yes, <laughs> go ahead. At which point, he asked me, what position did you play at Stanford? <laughs> and did you ever know Johnny Wooden? And I said, yeah, I told him what, what I've told you. And he said, oh, that's terrific. And as we, and as we left, um, my attorney turned to me, and he said, that son of a bitch ain't going to deport you.
0: So you you studied the political science as an undergraduate at Stanford, and then decided to go into law. So tell a little bit about the decision process. What attracted you to the law? Well, first political science, and then to law, and yeah, I'll stop there.
1: Well, I I guess I was always interested in, in, in politics. And I took a course, an undergraduate on the Supreme Court Uh, cases in in the poli-sci department at Stanford, and the professor, Professor Mason, was just a terrific teacher, and he uh, taught us all about Marbury versus Madison, those important cases, and I thought, gee, this is terrific stuff, so I, I applied to go to law school, and in those days, you could do three years of undergraduate at Stanford, and your fourth year, you could go to law school and get credit for undergraduate and for law school at the same time. So you save a year. And and since I was playing basketball, that was my senior year, that all fit in very well. So that's what I did. So after you graduated from law school, this is part two
0: now. We're going to draw into um, private practice. You became an attorney uh, here in San Francisco, uh, working generally on torts and contracts. Uh, A couple of particular cases I want to ask you about. But Let's do the fun one first. Uh, Your brother had a construction company. for whom you did some legal work, and rather than paying you the normal fee, he bought you a Rolls-Royce convertible?
1: (laughs) True. (laughs) Um, He got in a lot of trouble with the LA County flood control. Um, And I was in Europe at the time, uh, enjoying Europe, and um, he called me up and he said, come on back here, Uh, you've got to help me out. And so I spent about five months doing nothing but working on his case, and we got a good result. And so he asked me to send him a bill, and I said, I'm not going to send you a bill because you're my brother. And, and uh, he said, well, you don't have a car. You sold your car. And I said, yeah, I don't. And he said, well, I'll, get, I'll buy you a car. So I said, that, that sounds pretty good. Uh, what kind? He said, don't worry. You'll like it. <laughs> well, and you, you said you wanted a convertible,
0: didn't I you? I wanted a yeah. convertible, <laughs> and,
1: I, and I said, I, and. I don't want red leather seat covers. I didn't like that. They were too brash. Uh, so um, I went back to Europe to do what I had to do, um, which was some family business there. And he called me up and he said, go to go to London and pick up your car. And I said, well, what kind of car? Is it going to be an Austin Healey or is it an MG or what, what? He said, just go up to London. Don't worry about it. And that's when I went up there and and I f- went into mm-hmm. the showroom. and. Uh, a man came out <coughs> dressed exactly like the penguin in the Batman, <laughs> with striped pants and cutaway, a, a handkerchief stuffed in his sleeve, look at me, very fancy, and um, he said, uh, here's your car, and he pushed a button, and the floor went down, and the floor came up, and it was a silver-colored Rolls-Royce convertible. <laughs> <coughs> and um, I still have it, I came, I came to work on Monday with it.
0: Oh really, oh, I
1: was, good. I mean this was, um, if I remember the timeline, this was
0: sort of early 60s. 63, 1963. So, I mean, what, what uh, that's, that's a, still a novelty today, but it had to really be a novelty then. What was it like driving that around town?
1: Well, <laughs> yeah. it, it was, in those days it was less noticed than it is now, if, ah. if, if, if I drive it around town now, I get some strange uh, chance, let's say. Oh. Um, so I, I've got to be careful where I drive it, right? Mm. Uh, there were areas uh, in the Tenderloin where it's not a good idea to drive yeah. <laughs> OK. That. So
0: there's one case in particular uh, that I read about, uh, which was, I'll just call it the Avis case involving mm. Avis rent-a-car. And the reason it's interesting is you know, why would a case with Avis be interesting all these years later, except it involved Issues that today get wrapped up in current controversies about hate speech, and so talk talk us through the case of it because I think it's interesting, and then reflect on the distinctions to be made between what you observed there and some of the tangles of hate speech today.
1: Well, <clears throat> at that time, the case involved um, several workers at the Avis plant at San Francisco Airport, <clears throat> and these were all Latins, all Hispanics and i don't think anybody was really checking their immigration status at least of all avis Um, so they they had a straw boss uh, who was a um, the teamster business agent and he was not hispanic he was from uh, irish descent and he would abuse them by calling them wetbacks um, and some adjectives before the term wetback uh, (laughs) And um, and they, they complained about this, and they, they brought an action for about eight or 10 of them. Um, and not all of them recovered, but uh, they brought an action on based on um, uh, harassment in the workplace, uh, uh, yeah, uh, harassment uh, uh, at work. And the evidence was pretty strong and pretty good against the straw boss, especially when he took the stand. Uh, he, was, he wasn't very credible. Um, <laughs> so uh, I allowed the jury to uh, to determine damages in the case, and uh, the damages were, were pretty modest, but Avis wanted to take the case up, and they took the case up to the Court of Appeal and the, C- uh, the California Supreme Court, and they petitioned for certiorari to the um, United States Supreme Court. And the theory was that the Um, racial epithets which had been uh, stated to all the workers was free speech and uh, the UNRWA Act or the Workplace Non-Harassment Act um, was trumped um, by uh, notions of free speech and it was my view that the use of these epithets was not for the purpose of discussing whether they were accurate and whether the people really were blank uh, wetbacks, but were used solely for the purpose of harassment and hate at, at the workplace. Uh, and uh, my, the judgment was affirmed by the Court of Appeal 2 to 1 and by the uh, California Supreme Court 4 to 3. Wow. And when I went to the Supreme Court, there were two dissents from denial of certiorari uh, one of which was Justice Thomas
0: oh interesting yeah he he, uh, he probably would have been on your side though actually I mean well uh, t- today hate speech is defined as anything that offends me which is distinct isn't it from from the kind of speech you describe which really is meant to be harassment intimidating so forth
1: this was the speech that the straw boss or the Teamster guy used was anything but um, persuasive. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Okay.
0: Uh, you, I, I know, you, I think you did a lot of work with railroads, but you know, people, what are railroads these days? But uh, do you have any others from that period that you want to bring to mind, or?
1: Well, um, when I, I came you? to San Francisco, I, I, I didn't have a job, and so I asked the Stanford Placement Office what jobs were available. They said, go, go see the Dunn firm on Montgomery Street. I had no idea what they did. I thought I was going to be a tax lawyer. And um, it turned out that they offered me a job, and I took the first job I was offered, and they said, uh, we do railroad defense work, uh, (laughs) personal injury work, uh, we do insurance defense work, and uh, we'll get you ready to go to trial. And I was trying cases within a year of going to their first chair in federal and state courts. Uh, which is probably doesn't isn't done anymore now, but uh, I was trying a lot of cases, um, probably going to trial six or seven times a, mo- a year um, in, in cases, also doing construction cases. I do, I was re- representing contractors against municipalities, and I love the work. I, th- I thought that trying cases, getting ready for cases, and going to trial for jury cases was really very interesting and a lot of fun. So, in uh
0: to move ahead to 1989, Governor George Duke Majin comes calling, and he wants to appoint you to the Superior Court here in San Francisco. And two things, at least, are interesting about that. One is, no doubt, it was difficult even in the late 80s to find a Republican lawyer of any uh, uh, experience in San Francisco, where even then <laughs> Republicans met in a phone booth in this town. <laughs> but then, second, so about you, and and but then, of course, the Superior Court, you have to stand for election. On the next cycle, which was only a year later. And you did so with the, I think, across the board support of San Francisco Democrats, most particularly then Speaker Willie Brown. Uh, was it Phil Burton, John, one of the Burton brothers, John. right? Uh, and uh, so tell us a little bit about that, because I think that's interesting that you were able to appeal to support of the Democratic establishment and take it from there.
1: Well, what happened was uh, I went to lunch with a a uh, classmate from Stanford Law School who was a friend of the uh, of the governor's and he had a list of uh, names of people who wanted to be appointed to the superior court in San Francisco and he asked me my opinion of, uh, of these people and I looked at the list and I said to him I'm sure that all of these people when they come home at night are recognized by the dog <laughs> But I've never heard of these people before. <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> Who are these bozos? So he said, well, wise guy, uh, what about you? Um, at which point, I said, well, let me think about it. And I called my wife. And I said, um, there's this possible offer of a Superior Court judgeship. And she asked me, to, well, do Superior Court judges work on Saturdays and Sundays and prepare them for trial? I said, no, they don't. She said, take the job. (laughs) We had four boys at that time, and we had a lot of little games to go to, right? So I took the job, and within eight days, I found that I was being run against um, by a a woman who um, was a self-proclaimed lesbian and was uh, against me because I belonged to the Olympic Club, and that was the reason that she was running against me. But I had been careful enough when I talked to the governor's uh, appointment secretary to ask if there would be an election challenge possibility before I took the job. And he said there would be. And I said, well, then I can't take the job until I can talk to somebody um, else. And He said, you don't have to talk to anybody else. I've got the authority to offer you the job. I said, yes, I have to talk to somebody else. He said, who to? I said, Willie Brown. And uh, Willie and I were friends, and we would represented Wilkes-Bashford together in the past. And so uh, I asked him, Willie, will you uh, back me against the field? And he said, yes. So with that, I went back down. I said, OK, I'll take the job. And uh, sure enough, right after I got the call, I called Willie, and he said, come on down. Let's talk about the campaign. And he gave me some terrific hints. And I ran a campaign for four months, from February to June, and we won 58 to 42.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Just so the folks in the back in here, can we just point, point it like that? Point mm-hmm. it yeah.
1: And
0: uh, maybe it, it does it turn up somewhere? Um, oh, so then we fast forward to at night. Uh, sorry, 2003. The White House comes calling. Uh, Uh, there was some young fellow in the council's office named brett kavanaugh i think calls you Uh up and says uh what would you think about being appointed to the ninth circuit court of appeals and then history repeats you again had the support of the san francisco democratic establishment including the two senators from here uh and i I guess the two-part question is tell us a little bit more about how that came about because that's not automatic at all anymore and I wonder if that era of uh, sort of mutual respect that you saw with someone like Willie Brown in 1990 and in 2003, if that's possible anymore. It seems like that is now almost made impossible. Uh, well, I'll stop there and let you tell it how you want to.
1: Well, uh, I was on the, uh, on the Superior Court for 13 years, and I was getting ready to retire and looking around at JAMS and ADR to do uh, mediation and arbitration work. And uh, then I got a call from this gentleman named Kavanaugh, who I'd never met before, uh, who said that um, he would like me to drop by some afternoon to um, discuss judicial appointments. And I said, Mr. Kavanaugh, look, I'll talk about anybody you want to talk about, but dropping by is a little bit difficult because streetcars don't run very often between San Francisco and Washington, DC. Um, So he said, well, we're thinking about you, to appoint you to the Ninth Circuit. And I said, when's your next appointment? (laughs) (laughs) He said, Wednesday at 345. So uh, I went there, and I was uh, questioned by Kavanaugh, Flanagan, and Berenson, uh, the uh, Deputy White House Counsel, and also uh, Gonzalez came in. And... um, then, after a while, I, I, I got a call uh, from Kavanaugh saying, um, we're ready to nominate you, but you've got a clear boxer and Feinstein. Then um, I said, well, Feinstein, I don't think I have any problem. I've known her for years. We went to Stanford together um, and I've known her because uh, I've, I've been to her house to, with her former husband, Jack Berman, to pick up the uh, child, uh, Kathy, and take her about for outings to play tennis and things like that. And so I don't think there's any problem there. But but Boxer, I don't know at all. And so John Burton um, uh, came to my aid and cleared Boxer for me. And, um, and I asked him once why, because we disagreed on politics about everything. And he said, you're the best that blank Bush is going to be able to give us. <laughs> And what's more, you've got one blanking foot in the grave. And we'll, <laughs> and we'll get the seat back soon.
0: <laughs>
1: that, that's what Europeans
0: call real politique, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: all right, so uh, you Oh, by the way, I, 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 this, it's hard to believe, but I got passed the Senate 86 to 0.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's
0: also something we may not see again in our lifetimes. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, so so you were a trial judge, for a, first a trial lawyer, then a trial judge, and then an appellate judge. What were the differences that you observed or experienced between trial judging and appellate judging? Were there any surprises uh, uh, for making that transition?
1: Well, the big difference is, in trial, you get to meet people. You get to know the attorneys. You get to know the witnesses, the jurors. Uh, and on appeal, all you get to know is paper. Um, because yes, there are oral arguments. The attorneys come on for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, and then you never see them until maybe three years after that. And there are relatively few appellate attorneys who I can even recognize by name and, and face. Um, whereas, uh, as a trial judge, I knew a lot of attorneys because they'd be there for a week or two trying a case, get to know them. Um, as a trial judge, you have a great deal more flexibility, what's sometimes called discretion, which is a nice genteel word for power, <laughs> as as to what you're going to do, um, and on appeal. You've got to follow the law of the Ninth Circuit. And that's why we have excellent clerks that tell us what the law is, and sometimes they're right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so the, the big difference is the difference between the human personal contact in trial courts and the more um, intellectual uh, and formalized uh, review of issues on. The, on the, appellate court. And then you got to write opinions. Um, and you have to I like to write opinions that, that, that sort of follow what I th- think um, not, rather than what a chat Ibox or AI thinks. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: right. Uh, by the way, I'm going to open up to some audience questions in a few minutes. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to ask the judge about uh, three or four areas of the law and specific cases, uh, and then we'll do the audience question. So I'll prepare you to think about your questions if you have some. Uh, so I say I want to ask you about um, a couple of specific cases and a couple of general areas of the law. The first ones, I think, is the case that I've heard you express in interviews or read in articles that is either your favorite case or the opinion you're most proud of? I'm whatever the uh, whatever the characterization is that's correct, and that's Hinkson versus United States. I didn't have a chance to read it, and I'm not sure I completely grasp it. So,
1: walk us through that and tell us why it's particularly important to you. Uh, <clears throat> Hinkson versus United States was a was a very flamboyant case. Um, Hinkson um, wanted to kill the district court judge who has presided over his tax fraud trial. <laughs> and to do that, he hired a person who represented himself as a marine combat veteran uh, who was uh, expert in killing people. And um, so then the marine combat veteran um, went to the FBI and spilled the beans, and they indicted Hinkson. and. So the trial got started uh, on conspiracy and uh, intent to commit a murder of a federal trial trial judge. And it turned out that the Marine combat veteran was neither a Marine nor a (laughs) combat veteran, nor had killed anybody. He was a complete phony. Um, And so Hinkson was convicted and made a motion for a new trial. And the judge, who was at that trial, was Judge Tallman, a colleague, uh, determined that Hinkson's attorney and Hinkson had known about the man being a phony, and hadn't brought it up in his case, hmm. and defense, right? And therefore, they hadn't exercised due diligence in uh, a- at the time of trial and weren't entitled to a new trial because. This man was such a phony. So the issue was, to us in the Ninth Circuit, was Judge Tallman right in saying, and making his finding of due diligence? Now, up to that time, we had a rule that a court of appeal could overturn a finding of fact by a trial judge if if the panel had a definite and firm conviction that an error had been made. Now, I consider that to be totally subjective. Um, and so I wrote an opinion saying, no, you can't overturn a finding of fact by a trial judge unless it's implausible, illogical, or can't be inferred from the, fa- from the facts in the record. Now, this was an example of <coughs> separating the power discretion between the district uh, court, trial court, and, the, f- and the, the Court of Appeal. I had been a trial court judge, and I thought that determinations of issues of fact should be done by the trial court, not by the Court of Appeal on a cold record without having seen the witnesses. Um, and that turned out to be the rule of decision in the Ninth Circuit ever since, I guess, 2005. The case has been cited over 800 times.
0: So am I? Am I right then in summarizing it by saying that it, it is uh, an act of judicial restraint, rightly understood, right, that,
1: mm, right, uh, on the part of the appellate court?
0: Yes, no, correct. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because uh, I mean, what, uh, all right. I'll just press on here because uh, it's a fascinating subject. Um, another domain of cases, several that came before the Ninth Circuit that in, and that you sat on panels. And that's. Cases involving the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, and the Free Exercise Clause. One of them, which I remember vividly, (laughs) I think I told you the story of Newt Gingrich storming into my office after the Ninth Circuit said the Pledge of Allegiance was unconstitutional in high dudgeon. That's a funny story I won't tell you now. But uh, you were, I think, involved in that particular case and several others like it. So talk a bit about some of those, because I think that's a great highlight reel there.
1: Um, The Ninth Circuit had found that um, Mr. Newdow, Dr. Newdow, had a daughter going to a school in Rio Vista. And um, Dr. Newdow was a firm, convinced, very articulate, very intelligent atheist. And he didn't like the idea of his daughter listening to the Pledge of Allegiance, which had the words under God inserted into the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954. And he claimed that this was an establishment of religion. And the Ninth Circuit found that Dr. Newdow was absolutely correct. And in a decision written by Judge Goodwin with Judge Reinhart joining him, um, that was the decision. It went to the Supreme Court. Something strange happened in the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Kennedy uh, determined in oral argument that Mr. Newdow um, didn't have custody of his daughter because he'd been divorced and the, and the custody <laughs> went to his wife and therefore found that Mr. Newdow didn't have standing to bring the action, so reversed on that ground. It came back to the Ninth Circuit when Dr. Newton, Dr. Newdow, now an attorney, found a, uh, another parent with standing with another atheist child <clears throat> and the case came back and strangely enough, just uh, Judge Reinhardt was on the panel again. <laughs> <Imagine that. coughs> so Judge Reinhardt, Judge N- Betty Nelson, and and myself were on the panel. And I took the position that the words under God were a simply an affirmation, an enthusiastic affirmation, of the, the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, Like, very often you'll hear, by God, I'll do this. You don't really want to invoke the deity, uh, but but you want to emphasize what you're saying, right? And um, to my great surprise, Judge Betty Nelson, uh, who was appointed by Judge Carter, by President Carter, as was Judge Reinhardt, agreed with me to the great (coughs) dislike of Judge Reinhardt, who wrote wrote a dissent that went 153 pages with a table of contents <laughs> and 44 footnotes. <laughs> right. But I won't get into all those things. But, <laughs> but, but the Supreme Court um, <coughs> de- uh, denied certiorari. And so the, the rule of the Ninth Circuit is the same as it is in the Seventh Circuit and the Fourth Circuit and the First Circuit, that the Pledge of Allegiance is constitutional <laughs> and is not a, a, an establishment of religion because of the words under God.
0: Well, you know, what, I mean, what I remember of the moment was uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Judge Reinhardt would extend himself at such great length, you may remember that the United States Senate, I think the day after the ruling came out, voted a resolution, I think 98 to zero, denouncing the opinion. <laughs> and I don't know, I mean, it don't go off of the weeds, but the uh, although the Constitution does not, on the surface, resemble the the, de- the inv- inv- invocations of the deity like the Declaration of Independence does. There is, at the end, that phrase that says, in the year of our Lord, 1787. So there it is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that phrase of the Constitution unconstitutional? Oh, that's a rhetorical <laughs> question, right? I mean, just, but this is how crazy things are.: You don't have
1: standing. <laughs> of course.
0: And you know, isn't it typical of Judge Kennedy to pick on that to try and kick it out, rather than grappling with the problem? OK. Um, uh, next topic is uh, <clears throat> racial discrimination. We're all waiting with bated breath for the Harvard and UNC case decision coming in June. A lot of people are hanging on and mentioning the phrase that Chief Justice Roberts used in the Seattle public schools case several years ago, that the way to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race, which turns out a phrase that came from you.
1: That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Two years before in the same case, I had said exactly that at the end of my opinion. And um, pardon me, uh, my dissent from denial of rehearing. Um, and it, was, it turned out that uh, s- somebody else n- noticed that Chief Justice Roberts had appropriated without attribution <laughs> oh. that <laughs> phrase. And that other person was Justice Breyer in his dissent who repeated line for word for word what I had said in the dissent which is kind of change, strange if you think about it because usually dissents are read by the majority opinion before they go out to be printed, right? So uh, I would think that Chief Justice read Justice Breyer's uh, reminding him that um, the phrase was mine. But, and I haven't changed in my view. I think that the way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating by race. Um, the, uh, one year, um, 1985, I think it was, the Stanford Law Review, um, sent up a, a magazine, uh, writer to interview me, and I gave an interview. And then I asked the, the writer why she had picked me for, um, the interview. And she said, well, you turned out to be the first Latino who graduated from Stanford Law School. I said, I, I don't think that's quite right I, because Stanford Law School started in 1891. I graduated in 1958 and there had to be somebody in between <laughs> who graduated, who was a Latino or Hispanic. But I told her, I'll tell you one thing that's true. When I was at Stanford and Stanford Law School, I didn't know I was a Latino.
0: Well, but you're not even that anymore because it's latinx now, isn't it, or something? No. Right.
1: That's another story, yeah. All
0: right, so uh, I'm going to close my part of this with two general questions about the legal scene today, and then we'll take some audience questions. The first is, or uh, uh, the preface is this. What are some of the toughest areas of the law today? And some specific examples that come to mind is the Chevron Doctrine is suddenly up for grabs, and you've been saying for years that needed to be rethought. We now have the, the major questions doctrine articulated last spring, and we're not sure where that's going yet. So what are your reflections on that, or any, any other areas that you're looking at, saying, boy, this needs some serious rethinking?
1: Well, Steve, uh, the major questions doctrine and the Chevron doctrine both involve the same yeah. fundamental issue, which is the separation of powers uh, between the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. Um, I've been a great uh, doubter of the Chevron doctrine for years. I gave a speech at Heritage in 2015 on it, and I sort of ended the speech by saying, let's junk Chevron, uh, because Chevron is the idea that if Congress enacts legislation which the court finds to be ambiguous, rather than try to noodle through the ambiguity with the rules of statutory construction, and canons of statutory construction, the um, court should defer to the administrative agency's interpretation of Congress's act. Now, it might come as a great surprise to you, but when you allow the agency to interpret the Congressional Act, it usually ends up with the agency ratifying its own actions. <laughs> Strange <laughs> enough, right? And uh, I always thought that that was a flagrant violation of the separation of powers, that the agency should not be telling the judiciary how to interpret Congress's act. Congress can't even do that. They can't <laughs> pass an act saying, We really meant this. If you really meant this, enact it and have it signed, presented to the president, and signed. You just can't have a a sort of an advisory opinion. Um, And the major questions doctrine uh, is another separation of powers issue because um, in the West Virginia versus EPA case, building on the uh, Brown and Williamson tobacco case of years before, the, the court has said, if Congress really meant to make the, the radical changes uh, in industry and in finance which these uh, agencies want to make, it should say so clearly. Uh, if it doesn't say so clearly, we're going to find that there's no in expressed intent in the co- in the statute.
0: Yeah, I think, um, well, looking ahead here, I think just today, or maybe it was late yesterday, I just saw the headline. I didn't read the story, so I don't know if I've got this it. quite right, But a Some federal court, I'm not sure what level, has said that the proposed new rules uh, on the waters of the United States rules of the Biden EPA are unlawful. Uh, And then, of course, we're going to see what happens with these proposed rules on cars, that we're all going to have to drive electric cars in five years, six years. It's astonishing. Uh, So we'll see about all that. Uh, Let me do this as a last question, and then we'll turn to the audience. I want to read a quote from you. Not sure when you said this, but it doesn't matter because it channels Alexander Hamilton. So <laughs> you're good company. Here's, here's your comment The legislature and the executive follow what we order. We don't have a budget. We don't have an army. What can we do except issue decisions? But such is the respect in which the judiciary is held that there's a great deal of responsibility in exercising that power. Okay, um, like I say, Hamilton said something. we don't have the power of the purse or the sword in one of the federal's papers. And yet just last week, after the federal judge in Texas uh, issued a ruling that's roiling the waters about the FDA's authority to authorize Mephistoprone, or whatever it's called, and then, of course, stayed the effect of it for a week pending appeals, you had some leading political figures in another branch saying the administration, the executive branch, and states just ignore this ruling, just defy the court. I don't know if this is an isolated example that will go away, or if that's a symptom of some rising, what do you say, uh, disrespect, contempt. Uh, there are various ways you can slice this up. But I wonder what you make of all that.
1: Well, first of all, it's nothing new. Uh, President Jackson. Uh, didn't like the the Supreme Court's decision uh, handed down by Chief Justice Marshall in the Indian uh, tribes case. And he said, have Marshall enforce his own order. And this was in 1805 or 1812 or so. Um, And then um, President Lincoln didn't like Dred Scott and said it's only going to affect the parties to the action. So he tried to cabinet. And Harry Truman didn't like the National Labor Relations Act all that much when he wanted to take over Jones and Laughlin. But the judiciary survived all these executive attempts to uh, override the judiciary. And I think we'll survive the next one.
0: All right. Let's uh, let's have some audience questions or comments. (laughs) <laughs> if you would, we do it this way on campus. Please state your name, if you would. And we try to follow the Jeopardy rule, which is make your statement in the form of a question. So yes, ma'am. So my name is Sarah Reese. I'm an attorney, longtime Federalist Society member. I'd like to hear about your wife and how oh. your relationship with her <laughs> contributed to the extraordinary
1: career and life you've had. Well, as you've heard, about, it was my wife's idea to uh, get me into the judicial gig oh. to begin with, right? Um, she's been wonderfully supportive, and um, well, I can't say enough about her help. She's been terrific, uh, and she's kept me on the straight and narrow. Someone else? Yes, sir.
0: My is William Otishevitz, and what we're seeing at the Supreme Court level really upsets me recently because We don't
1: have a Department of Justice that is enforcing the protection necessary in the case of uh, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, uh, attack. And we haven't been able to resolve the issue of the leak uh, that has basically, I think, destroyed a good amount of the goodwill of the court. Uh, What can we do about that? Well, let me tell you, in, um, I guess it was in November, there was a meeting of the Federal Judicial Council in uh, Washington, D.C. and uh, the Attorney General, Mr. Garland, was uh, asked by a a judge, a circuit court judge, why he hadn't invoked federal protection for Mr. Kavanaugh. And his answer was, I turned it over to the state police and he wouldn't say another thing. So the provision of, protection for judges um, is in the hands of the political branch of the executive, and that's uh, the only answer I can give you. Um, You had another issue? By the same token, we have not been able to find out who the leaker was in the Supreme Court. That again, I think, diminishes the the importance of the Supreme Court when we have the ability Well, the the leaker investigation was carried out by a interior police person of the court without subpoena power and without any of the uh, investigatory tools, which uh, the FBI, for instance, has. So it's not a surprise to me that the leaker has not been found.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I have lots of thoughts. Someone else? Anybody? Oh, another one. You're, I think you're, you're a ringer, I think, but that's okay. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm legit. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, look, I didn't clerk for the Supreme Court. I clerked for a United States District Judge. But I got to say that um, I think it would be pretty hard to figure out who the leaker was when anybody could just print it out and pass it in a bar to
1: some guy um so i think it's a very bad thing that the leak happened but i don't think it would be that hard to effectuate a leak if you wanted
0: to as a law clerk
1: yeah i agree with you don't put any ideas in the mind of the two law no, clerks. No, 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 no. <laughs>
0: yeah i mean uh, i wasn't gonna get out my own perspective i'm thinking about the reagan years you know i wrote this as mentioned two these two fat books about uh, the Reagan presidency, and leaks were driving Reagan crazy, and I think it was Attorney General Meese. By the way, we skipped over you arguing against law student Ed Meese in a moot court. <laughs> I may ask you about that. Who won? Oh.
1: Meese. Yeah. Defending a labor union. That's the funniest part of the story, right? <laughs> but it was at Berkeley. It was on home ground. Oh,
0: yeah. There you go. So, uh, so, you know, I think Mies had the I think it was Mies, a little fuzzy now, had the idea that we ought to do polygraph tests of everybody, you know, whoever might be the source of these national security leaks. And that's when George Shultz went into him and said, I hate leaks too, but if you make us all take polygraphs, I'm out of here in 10 minutes. And Reagan rescinded the idea. I, I think a similar dynamic happens in the court, which is, yeah, you could have had the FBI come in. You could have had polygraphs, which might have snared somebody who left it on a bar, but boy, what does that do to the culture? Of the, I'm not sure, but you can you can see the other side of the coin there, which is, do you really want to be tearing that much of the court's culture apart to find this one leaker or this one extro... Oh, I don't know, we'll see. Um, anyone else? Yes, sir, yeah. Hi, I'm Ben Sackerson, I go to Berkeley. So ah. If Chevron doctrine is axed, what is the judge to do if they exercise every tool set for interpretation and there's still ambiguity?
1: Pardon me If Chevron mm-hmm. goes goes yeah, the way. To go well, it's, it's very simple. You, you take Chevron and junket, and you go back to Marbury versus Madison, and there it says it's the duty of the judiciary to determine what the law is. If the law is so ambiguous that you can't make out what Congress meant, you don't enforce it. You just say, I can't understand what Congress said or meant. And therefore, it's not applicable to the case. Next, right. <laughs>
0: right. yeah, asking Congress to work a little harder is not a heavy exactly. lift, but yeah, you yeah. um, know, someone else, especially a student. Is there another Dave. student who's got a? All oh, right, let's do. Yeah. Uh, this is for the students. So, <laughs> right. I, I was talking to one of your clerks, and he was saying that he wasn't going to s- probably stay in San Francisco, and I think this applies oh. to all of the younger folks here. <laughs> and with your wisdom of, you know. Decades of experience in these establishments in San Francisco. What is the one establishment you would uh, recommend that these young folks go to before they leave town for a meal? Oh. And oh. what would one saloon be that you would say? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've got to tell you, I'm really out of the saloon league recently. Um, I've been married for 47 years, right? Uh, the uh, As far as restaurants go, We have a rule that we don't go to any restaurants we can't walk to. Um, (laughs) And uh, there are very few. uh, Roses is one. And um, Dragonwell uh, in Marina is two. And that's about all I can recommend. Plus Capuro's on Fisherman's Wharf, because Lou Capuro is a uh, handball player, and Louise is a handball player. And so therefore, we're all friends.
0: All right, well, I'll pose a last question to draw us to an end, and it's going to be the earnest version of that question. I was preparing to ask uh, for the law students here. Mm-hmm. We should always ask someone like you this question. For the law students here and, and people in the early years of their private practice or whatever they're doing, you, you know what's next. What, what's uh, one or two pieces of advice? What, what are things you wish you had known or been advised as a young lawyer or law student? that you would now like to pass on to someone? If that's a, that's a very broad, I know, but.
1: Well, decide what kind of work you want to do. There are only two kinds of work, litigation and (laughs) 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 non-litigation. And and then um, work hard, because uh, cream rises to the top.
0: Yeah. Judge Bay. Congratulations oh. on a spectacular career and interesting life story. Thank you Thanks very much for coming tonight. And thank you all ladies and gentlemen for coming
1: too. Now we can have a drink, right? Now you can have a drink, yes, <laughs> right.